I think all the little bitty ones are gone except for little tiny babies. And uh, that means we can really get into the heavy stuff now, right? You ready? <clears throat> so can we trust our English versions? Part two. This is day two of our class, which should be day 16. But we only have two hours. In fact, we don't have an hour. We have 45 minutes. So we'll get right into it. Thank you for staying and for being a part of this second session. Let's have a brief word of prayer. Our good Father, we thank you for your word that's been preserved through the centuries in miraculous, amazing ways by your providential care. And we pray we will come to a deeper appreciation of what we have in our hands and be thankful. And especially, Lord, be submissive to your will that's so wonderfully revealed therein. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. It is beyond comprehension what he did for us. And we pray we'll humbly submit to him as our master and Lord. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how did we get our Bibles, which are so available and usable to us today? That is a long and fascinating story. At the church where I am an elder, we have a series of lessons that we do over a period of two semesters on how we got the Bible. So I'm going to have to talk really fast. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek by about 40 different authors over a period of some 1,600 years. All of you Bible students know <clears throat> the Bible is not one book, but 66 books with a long and fascinating history. We do not possess anywhere on earth any of the original autographs of either the Old or the New Testaments. Very important for you to understand that statement. Original autograph means the original handwritten document dictated by God to human beings who wrote it down in some fashion. We don't have any of them anywhere on earth. Were you aware of that? Well, it's the truth. That is a fact. How can then we be confident in English versions, given that so much time has passed, so many things have happened, and the difficulty of translating from one text, a text in one language to the other, but more than that, that we even have the text itself? Do we have the text as God wants us to have it? That's the big question. And it is a very challenging question. It's one to which you need to know some very broad answers. And it's an excellent question. And any Bible critic is going to attack you with that if they're informed. I've already said to you the most trustworthy modern English versions are those translated by large committees of scholars from various backgrounds produced with the intent of giving a word-for-word -word accurate translation of the best available Greek and Hebrew text. That was last lesson. And here are the five that I recommended. We don't have time for review class. Even those five vary, however, as we've told you, and part of that is because of recent discoveries of ancient manuscripts and ancient documents, copies of the text that were not available in earlier translations, and the relative importance given to these by committees of scholars. 
I don't want to leave you with the idea that the old-timers couldn't understand what God wanted. There were some key passages that had some challenges to them, as you will see. This morning, in this discussion, we will focus only on the New Testament. You should have Tim teach you about the Old Testament or somebody else. There's another whole study on the Old Testament, and it's wonderful. You should do it. We follow the New Testament as our covenant, don't we, class? So we're more interested in that, and so that's why I'm focusing on the New Testament. And we're going to deal with questions of variations in the text of the English versions based on the Greek. There are variations in the text of our English versions. I already showed you that, didn't I? And the reasons are there are variations in extant Greek manuscripts and ancient versions of the Bible. Have you ever heard of the word extant? Probably a new word to most folks. Extant means you can find it somewhere on earth. It means it exists. You can go look at it. So I want to read that again. There are variations in extant Greek manuscripts. That means manuscripts are what, class? Handwritten documents that date back centuries ago. Some of those manuscripts vary with one another, even in the Greek. And in ancient versions, class, a manuscript is an ancient handwritten document in the original language. A version is an ancient document in a different language. And we have both. And there are variations. So, we're going to talk for just a few minutes about the preservation of the Greek New Testament. You can't have an English New Testament if it's not founded on the Greek because God did not speak to humans in English first. He spoke to them in Greek, and they wrote it down in Greek. So the text of the Greek is critically important to the text in English. Here are some of the most famous and most important of the ancient manuscripts of the text of the New Testament. We have not time today to talk about these at some length. We'll talk about a little bit. The Rylands Fragment, the Vatican, the Sinaitic, and the Alexandrian, these three class are the most, they're the most precious documents on the face of the earth because they're the oldest copies of the New Testament text in existence anywhere. And the Sinaiticus is, is complete. It's the whole New Testament. So they're precious. So these documents are critically important, but you should know that compared to all other ancient books, there's no comparison. So I want to spend just a minute with you to show you how God's providence has preserved his material. For example, Livy wrote the history of Rome in the first century. The New Testament was written in the first century, wasn't it? For all of the New Testament. Well, Livy wrote a history of Rome in the New Testament. We have 20 manuscripts of Livy's history of Rome. The earliest copy we have dates to 500 years after he wrote it. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. But that's typical. 
for ancient documents. 20 manuscripts of Livy's History of Rome is amazing to have 20 copies of that thing that dates 500 years later. That's really good for ancient documents. And everybody studies Livy's History of Rome as if, well, we've got it. It's, we've got a copy that's within 500 years. Caesar's Gallic Wars. Caesar, Julius Caesar, wrote a book called The Gallic Wars. It was a handwritten text just reminding everybody about the Gallic Wars. He won those, you know, and of course kings love to write about that. We have 10 manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic Wars that date the earliest, it dates to 900 years after he wrote it. That's typical. Tacitus wrote the Annals, which is a very famous history of that period of time in the first century. We have two manuscripts left. The earliest one's 800 years after he wrote it. That's typical, class. What about the New Testament written in the first century? We don't have any of the originals, but we do have 5,795 plus manuscripts, some date as early as 40 years after it was actually written. You see that? There is no other ancient text in history that is even close to the textual support for the New Testament. Period. And nobody disagrees with that. So that's a powerful statement for how God has preserved his word. And folks, how did he preserve it? Somebody had to write it letter by letter by hand for centuries was there a printing press in the first century class? The first printing press was invented in 1450-something. So for 1400 years, the only books you could get were handwritten. And if we had time, class, I would ask all these children up here at the front, may I call you children? In fact, I think I'm going to give you an assignment anyway and ask your parents to follow up. So let's do it this way. I would like for each of your children to sit down in a very hard chair, pulled up to a very hard table, and get them a quill pen to dip in ink and copy 15 verses of any text you want out of the Bible in manuscript form and send it to me with their name on it and the parent's signature. Why do I want you to do that? I want you to see how God has chosen to preserve his text for centuries. That's the only way you could get a book. And I'm going to show you in a minute one of those ancient documents and show you how it looked and that's what I want you kids to do. So you listening? I want you to make it look like that. There are 5,795 plus of those partial or complete copies of the ancient text of the Bible. The earliest dating back to about 40 years after it was written. The most important ones are three to 400 years after but that is by far the most best documented text of any book. So here's the point, class. We can take those 5,700 plus manuscripts and compare them with each other to ensure what the original text was, even though we don't have the original. 
There's not another text in all of history that's even in the same light year as the New Testament with all of its textual support. When God chose to preserve his word, he preserved it marvelously compared to anything else that has ever been written in the history of mankind, but he promised that in 1 Peter 1, didn't he? My word will not pass away, and he has not allowed it, but it was a tough thing to keep it. There have been many public burnings of Bibles and efforts by atheists to eliminate it from the face of the earth. Can you imagine if you spent time and hand copied an entire text for somebody to take that and burn it? So what do you do? You copy it again. So here we are, the three great witnesses. First, the manuscripts. I have time only today to briefly touch on one. You see this one, Sinaiticus 8350? The Sinaiticus text, the manuscript of the new, and by the way, a good bit of the Old Testament as well, was found at the foot of Mount Sinai, the ancient location, traditional location of Mount Sinai. There's a monastery there called St. Catherine's Monastery that's the oldest continually used monastery on earth. And it's full of old dusty stuff. And in the 1800s class, a gentleman named Konstantin von Tischendorf went to St. Catherine's Monastery and discovered through a long, tedious story, which I have not the time to tell you. I wish I could read you that whole story. It's better than the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he discovered the Sinaiticus Manuscript in 1849. King James Version was translated in 1611. They didn't have access to Sinaiticus. And it's the oldest complete copy of the New Testament, handwritten. So Mr. Greg, our champion IT guy, will now take us to the Sinaiticus manuscript, and what you need to know is for a long time it was a book that was kept in the British Library in London, England, and it's still there. It's extant. You can go see it. Put it on your bucket list. You can also see the Alexandrian, which was up there a while ago, that's also in the British Library. Go see them. They're the most ancient copies of the complete Bible in the New Testament you'll ever find so far. But what's happened is all of the places where the Sinaiticus is preserved, there's four places on earth where there are parts of it, they've decided to put it all together, digitize it, and put it on a computer so any human being now can look at Sinaiticus. So class, may I introduce you to Sinaiticus, a text of the Bible that dates back to the 300s, handwritten. So you can see there are parts of it. I'm going to have Greg, first of all, let's just look. See that little script here, this text. It's in the book of Genesis. Uh, get rid of that. Just click on Genesis and get rid of it. See that thing? That's a script. That's a part of the manuscript. Some of it's not in good shape, as you can imagine, especially the Old Testament. But let's go now. Let's find the book of Mark. See, here we go to Josh. We're going to go down here to the book of Mark. Boom. You can go over and find the chapter. See right there? Click on chapter 16. And then you can go to verse 8. And here we are. He's going to show us. There it is. You want to scoot it up a little bit, Greg? There you go. Right there. Let's, yeah, hold it about right there. 
What you see right here, class, is the end of verse 8 of Mark 16. Scoot over to your left a little, Greg, over here, this way, and scoot up a little bit now. And, and then let's blow this up just a little bit so they can see the writing. All right, young people, are you looking? What I expect to receive from you is a manuscript of 15 verses <laughs> written like this. Do you notice all capital letters, right? There are no, only capital letters. These ancient manuscripts were called unseals because they were in all caps. So you have to print in all capital letters. Notice there's exactly the same number of letters in each row here. So you have to count your letters. There are no spaces. There are no punctuation marks, no commas, no periods, no exclamation marks, no nothing. There are no spaces between words. There are no verses, no chapters, just one line after another of letters. You with me? And so here it is, line after line after line after line. Now, sometimes there's a skip. There's a leave some space, so I'm not going to worry about that. But mostly you want the same number of letters in every column. Scoot down now, Greg, <clears throat> so you can see. We're going down the book of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, we're going, or 1 through 8. So we're reading down in Greek here. Okay, now let's go back up to the top to verse 8. We're going to look at the end of verse 8, <clears throat> right over here. See how good he is at this? By the way, what he's doing there is not easy. He had to practice. So here we go. This is the end of verse 8. And now, uh, Greg, when we go, here's verse 8 in Mark 16, and let's go down now. What you've got after that is a lot of empty space here. You see that? It's blank. It looks like something's written in the background, doesn't it? And by the way, there's a new word I'm going to introduce to you. It's called a palimpsest. P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T, palimpsest. That's an ancient document on vellum that was erased and used again. And that was commonly done because writing materials were at a premium. So they'd erase them sometimes and use them again, and I think that's what happened here in this manuscript. But now go back up to the top, Greg. So you've got all this blank space, and then over at the top of the next column, scoot up a little bit right there, that's the book of Luke, beginning of the book of Luke. <clears throat> so class, in the Sinaiticus manuscript, from Mark 16, verse 8, to the beginning of Luke, there's a big blank. Verses 9 through 20 are missing in that manuscript. It's only one of the three most important copies of the New Testament we have in existence. And it's missing. In Vaticanus, by the way, where do you think that one's found? The Vatican. And it was hidden in their library for centuries because they didn't let anybody look at it. In particular, the King James translators didn't have access to it. It was not open to the public to use until the 1800s. And now you can use it as if you're a scholar by facts. But don't think you're going to go in the Vatican and see it unless you're a personal friend of the Pope. But it also is missing verses 9 through 20 
of Mark. So why is that? Very interesting question. You may know there are books written about that. And so I'm not here to discuss that whole issue, but the fact is in those two ancient copies of the New Testament, that text is missing. So if you're on a committee of scholars that puts great weight on Sinaiticus and Vaticanus as textual support, then you will have some question about Mark 16, 9 through 20. I'm letting that sink in. What I'm presenting to you, class, is the facts of the matter. What it means is another question, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I hope I have time. All right, was that fun? I want you to go home and find time to look up Sinaiticus and play around with it. You can look through it and you can see some very interesting things because you can find out there were different scribes that copied it. They have different handwriting. When these kids send me their script, I can tell you it's going to look different because some of you are better writers than others. So were some of the ancient scribes. Can you imagine sitting at a hard desk? By the way, I didn't say this. It should be at night with a candle. No gas. And you're writing one letter at a time. Line after line after line. And it's okay to do it in English. All caps. That class is how God preserved his book for centuries. So we're back. Thank you for getting me back to this. The other thing we have as a testimony to the text of the ancient documents of the Bible is the versions. Those are ancient handwritten copies that are in a different language than Greek. So there are versions in the old Syriac, there are versions in the old Latin, there are versions in Ethiopic and Coptic, and the versions in the Vulgate, which is an ancient Latin version, that go way back, and you can use those also to support the text of Scripture. Do I have time to talk about that? No, I do not. So I'm going to tell you one little example from the Bible. In Acts chapter 8 class, who was reading from the book of Isaiah? The Ethiopian eunuch. So here's what he did. By the way, he was riding in a Cadillac, right? No, he's riding in a chariot. And I hope he wasn't driving that chariot because he was reading. And I hope you quit reading while you're driving or texting. That's not good. But the Ethiopian who was reading the text of Isaiah did not just flip to his Bible like this. Oh, there it is, Isaiah 53. Isn't that nice? No, what he was reading was very much like what I just showed you, the Sinaitic version. And it was probably on calfskin called vellum on a scroll like this with three columns of that line by line with no punctuation, no verses, just text. You ought to try reading it sometime. So here he is. And by the way, it's probably like this. <clears throat> have you thought about that? In the first place, how did he get a copy of the book of Isaiah? Nobody had copies of Isaiah back in those days. 
except the richest people on earth. The eunuch was a rich man. He was the treasurer of a country. He had his own copy of Isaiah. And secondly, what language was it in? By that time, probably the only way to get it is the ancient Greek. And so he probably was a student of more than one language. I think I know why God himself picked up a preacher named Philip from Samaria and transported him miraculously to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza to catch up with one human being who was riding in a chariot on his way home from worship trying to read Isaiah. This man wanted to know what God said, didn't he? And he invited that man to jump up in the chariot with him. I mean, this is a very important person. He didn't know this man from Adam. And he lets him sit in the chariot with him because he wants to understand what this text is saying. Is it talking about himself or some other man? And you remember Philip began at that scripture and preached to him Jesus. And the next thing you hear is they... The eunuch said, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? You talk about a good heart. And by the way, couldn't you conclude from that that preaching Jesus must include preaching water baptism? And if you listen to a lot of preachers today who are preaching Jesus, you'd never know anything about water baptism. In fact, they'd preach against it. If you're listening to a preacher like that, you're not listening to a preacher of the gospel and quit listening to him. That's all thrown in free of charge. That's not part of this lecture. But it ties in, doesn't it? There are a lot of ancient versions of the text of the Bible already translated into other languages, handwritten. In addition to that, the old church fathers, that are the leaders of the church in the first, second, third centuries, did a lot of writing. And they'd write letters to each other. So I'd write to Tim here or to David, and I'd say, guys, I'm having a challenge with some things at this church. And, I, you know, I know this passage, and then they'd quote a whole passage in the text. And then they'd say, I want to know what you think about this. And then they'd quote two other passages. Let me read you a text here about this. So extensive are the citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they, that is the citations of the early Christian writers, would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. They were quoting the scriptures in their text all the time. May I ask you, Christian, do you quote the text of the Bible in your letters a lot? They did. You could reproduce the entire New Testament just from their quotes. So there are three great witnesses. Back up one slide for me, would you? Two, go ahead, back one more. There. The manuscripts, the versions, and the church fathers. You put all of that together. Look, I'd love to have a court case where I was trying to prove the text of anything. There were, you got that many witnesses. And that's what's undergirding the text of the Bible. It's amazing. All right.
The Greek New Testament class, divinely inspired in its original autographs, was transmitted to us through the hands of copyists. The manuscripts, ancient versions, and writings of the early Christians were all copied by hand. In some cases, copyists were looking at earlier copies as they made their copies. That's what you kids are going to do. You're going to look at a copy in English, which in your case was run off a machine, and you're going to write a copy by hand. The old guys looked at a handwritten copy and wrote another copy by hand. That's how we got the Bible. In other cases, how would you mass produce handwritten documents, class? You put together what's called a scriptorium. <clears throat> and I have pictures of it and other things I'd present. <clears throat> but you can imagine an old dirty room in a, in a monastery. And they clean it out a little bit and they got a bunch of tables. So there's 15 guys sitting at tables, and there's one guy standing up here reading the text, and they're writing it line by line. That's called a scriptorium. That's how you mass produce handwritten documents. And it was very common. Human copyists are susceptible to slips and faults either of the eye or of the ear. Young people, when you do that assignment, you're going to make mistakes, period, guaranteed. With the old vellum manuscripts, they had a way they could scrub off a letter that was messed up and redo it. You're not allowed to use whiteout. So you figure it out. And by the way, if they made enough mistakes and they couldn't fix it, you know what happened to that vellum? They either threw it away and burned it and you start it over, no Xerox. Are you erased enough so you could correct it sufficiently to meet their satisfaction? But can you see, class, that human copyists could make mistakes? Of course they could. Scribes were also sometimes susceptible to trying to improve a text by making it agree with other passages of Scripture. There is some limited evidence of that kind of activity, especially in the Gospels. From one point of view, class, it could be said that there are over 200,000 errors in the Greek New Testament text. And critics of the Bible love to harp on that. How then can we trust even our modern Greek text, much less the English text, which is based on the Greek text? Would you trust a document that has 200,000 errors in it? And that's what a critic of the Bible will tell you. This large number of errors is gained by counting all the variations in all the manuscripts. For example, here's a good example. If there's a slight variation in 400 manuscripts, they count that as 400 errors. No class, that's one error copied 400 times. So their way of counting is not good. It's to make it look as bad as possible. This method of counting is misleading. So I want to show you the proper way to consider about these errors. So if you don't remember anything else from today, you remember then when we get finished, well, what I'm about to say is what I want you to remember above all else.
So here we go. First portal class, there's over 5,700 manuscripts <clears throat> in the, on the earth, plus versions, plus quotations from church fathers. When you compare all of those variations, and I'm going to limit myself today to the manuscripts, there's over 5,700 of those. 86% of the text of the Bible of the New Testament is in 100% agreement. I'm going to illustrate it. <clears throat> I have my copy of the New Testament here, and Matthew begins right there. And the book of Revelation, chapter 22, ends right there. That's my copy of the New Testament as I'm using it. But it's got some other stuff in it. You know, this has helps, and, but it's close enough for government work. Let's say that's 253 pages right there. 218 of those pages are identical in all the manuscripts. So I'm going to take out, how many am I going to take out? 253 minus 218 is 35. So I'm going to take out exactly 35 pages. I don't know how many that is. But. Class, all of this right here in all the manuscripts is identical. So there's nothing for a textual critic to do because they all agree. So now we're down to these 35 pages. Look next. 12% of those are spelling variations. That's another 30 and a half pages. Of all of these, the most of the variations are spelling differences. So I'm going to take out all but four and a half pages. The variations among these manuscripts, texts, are spelling variations. Let me show you some examples. Often words in Greek copies are spelled differently over a period of years. Has spelling ever changed in an English class? Like if you spell the word judgment, it's J-U-D-G-E-M-E-N-T, right? Wrong. It's now J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T. And if you look in a dictionary, you find both. Because that's two different ways of spelling the same word. You think that happened in Greek over centuries? Of course it did. So some of the manuscripts have E-I interchanged for I. Some of them have A-I interchanged for E. They changed A-I to E. That's what happened with the language. Does it change one thing about what it says? No, it does not. Bethzatha became Bethesda because that's, that's the modern way to pronounce it. Pronounce it. Doesn't change a thing about what it says. There's another one and a half percent that are minor variations. That's another, what does that say? 3.25 pages. I'm down to one page in a quarter class. Let me show you a minor variation. In Matthew 118, some of the ancient copies say the birth of Jesus Christ in that verse. Some of them say the birth of Christ Jesus. Isn't that awful? And some of them say the birth of Jesus. And some of them say the birth of Christ. That's four variations. That's four errors. Wrong. It's four variations. Doesn't change a thing about what it says. That's what I mean by minor variations. Which leaves us 
with one and a quarter pages of significant variations. And may I say right here, because I'll say it again later, I hope. You take all of those together, you will have not changed one doctrinal issue in all of the Bible. Pretty commonly certified text. So guess what? The ones I presented to you at the last hour are some of those significant variations. And one of them is Acts 8.37. So this is where the textual critic has to get to work. Because the various ancient documents disagree on Acts 8.37. Here's the way we would look at it. I already showed you what the King James and the New King James said. What's the support for the King James reading of Acts 8.37? Which says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart you may. And the eunuch said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the text as it is in the old King James. What's the support for that verse? One sixth century unseal. That means a sixth century manuscript that's in all caps like you kids are going to do. But it dates to the 6th century. That's the 500s. There's one. There's some good minuscules, which I haven't talked to you about, but minuscules date to 8 and 900 after Christ. And one, the old Latin version, has it in it. But you remember, I read to you from the New King James, it says, in you and M omit verse 37. It is found in Western texts, including the Latin tradition. What is in you and M? Very briefly, class. In you is the Greek text of the 26th edition of the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament and the third edition of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament. Does that help you? It's two of the greatest experts on the Greek text, Nestle and the United Bible Societies, that have combined to give us a text they say is the best text in existence for the Bible's Greek New Testament. And that text does not contain Acts 8.37. M is the majority text that holds that the best Greek text is based on the consensus of the majority of existing Greek manuscripts, even though many are late and none are earlier than the 5th century. So the majority text says we're going to look at the most of the transcripts we have, and M also omits Acts 8.37. So what's the opposition to this verse? Practically all other manuscripts do not have it. No Greek manuscript earlier than the 6th century knows this reading. So does Acts 8.37 belong in the original text of the Bible? Did God dictate that to Luke? when he wrote Acts 8? That's the question. I am telling you that the factual support for that verse is what I've just described to you. It is not strong at all. So which version are you going to trust? The American Standard, ESV. The American Standard, the NASV, and the ESV all omit that verse and put it in a footnote. I'm telling you, for me and my family, that's the one I'm going to trust the most because it has the greatest textual support. And may I ask you, class, do we have other passages in the New Testament that insist you have to confess? Of course we do. Romans 10.10 10 says, For with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. With the heart you believe unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.10. 10. 
about which there's no textual criticism. How about Jesus? Did he ever say you had to confess him? Well, do something with your head. Did he? Yes, he said, if you confess me before men, what? I will confess you before my Father who's in heaven. Do we have to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Well, of course we do. You don't need Acts 8.37 for that. Okay? I'm going to let you mull that over. 1 John 5. And we didn't get to talk about this, so what time do I have? I got five minutes. I'm going to go quickly on this because I want to get to Mark 16. The support for 1 John 5, 7, and 8, as it reads in the King James Version, is one, it's the Erasmus text of the Greek Testament, and he based it on two manuscripts, one from the 14th and 15th century and one from the 16th. There are two other manuscripts that have this rendition of the verses written in the margin not in the text. And there's some late Latin versions that have it. What's the opposition for the verses as it is written in the King James? Practically all other manuscripts and versions. No Greek manuscript earlier than the 14th century knows the reading as it is in the King James. Well, the King James translators can be forgiven because they didn't have access to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and a whole lot of other manuscripts. But the reading they were basing it on was Erasmus's Greek text of the Testament. And he said one time, if you can find me one manuscript that's got that way of saying it, I'll put it in there. It's not the well-supported class. And if you read in the American Standard Version of, the first, of 1 John 5, 7, and 8, you will find the text as it is in the best Greek manuscripts with no footnotes. I recommend those versions to you because they're more textually sound. 1 John 5, 7, and 8 is better read in the American Standard and the New American Standard and the ESV. <clears throat> and by the way, you don't lose a thing by leaving out what the King James Version did with it. But let's talk about Mark 16. <clears throat> What's the opposition to these verses? Vatican and Sinaiticus manuscripts do not have them. I showed you that, didn't I? You can go look for yourself. The Sinaiticus manuscript from verse 8 of Mark 16 through verse 20, the whole end of it is missing. But you did notice there was something in the background there. Folks, why are those sections missing? And by the way, do you think people commonly skipped whole chunks of space on those vellum manuscripts? Are you kidding me? They wouldn't skip anything. That's why they ran everything together. So why is there a bunch of skipped space? Well, there's some explanations for that that I think are pretty sound. The earliest known copies of the old Syriac and the Vulgate do not have it. And a large number of Armenian manuscripts do not have it. What's the support for these verses? Almost all other manuscripts have verses 9 through 20 in them. And there's a statement from the church father Arrhenius in the second century showing it existed back then. Look, class, I'm not, I don't have time to discuss this, but you can be very comfortable that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is a part of what God dictated to Mark. There's overwhelming support for it. It's just Sinaiticus and Vaticanus that caused the problem. And I say just that. They're very important. 
But maybe there's some other explanations for that. So you can quote Mark 16, 16 with great confidence, which we use all the time, don't we? All right. Well, I did pretty well, class. I think we're about at the end here. So you see, the significant variations are less than 0.5% of all the text of all those manuscripts. Incredible, class, that over thousands of years, copied thousands of times, practically all of it agrees. And the mistakes that are in there are not really mistakes for the most part. They're just variations. And no doctrinal issue is, in, is affected by any of it. So, with these great witnesses, the interval in between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the Scriptures have come down to as substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the Bible of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established, says Sir Frederick Kenyon in the Bible and Archaeology, 1940. And I say, amen. We can have great confidence in the Greek text of the New Testament and the Hebrew text of the Old that provide our basis for our English versions. We can also have great confidence in our English versions, which were translated by large committees of scholars who were committed to giving the world an accurate word-for-word -word translation of the best available Greek and Hebrew text because the word of the Lord, say it with me, endures forever. 1 Peter 1. Thank you for your careful attention.